Am I on microphone? Okay, great. Uh, we told this story uh, during Sunday school, so most of you have heard it. Um, my wife Audrey was going to Costco with one of our Japanese friends, and um, as they got back from Costco, they were sitting in the van out front of the house, and Audrey's uh, friend said, um, when I worked at a Christian preschool in Japan, uh, someone gave me a Bible, but um, as soon as I left that preschool, I, I threw the Bible in the trash. And as Audrey talked to this friend about why she had done that, uh, it came out that um, while she was at that Christian preschool, she had been mistreated and bullied by her coworkers. And the person who had mistreated her the most was the person who identified most publicly with Jesus. Um, a Bible was a gift given to our Japanese friend, uh, and it should have been a good gift. Um, but instead, it, to her, it wasn't worth anything. It was only worth throwing in the trash. And so today I'd like to talk about the attitude that we have when we share about Jesus. I want to talk about how our hearts should be when we tell people about who Jesus is. As we take this message to Chase County and as we take it to the world, what we should be, what our attitude should be as we do these things. So to start, I want to ask you the question, what makes you happy to be a Christian? You may want to think deeply about this for a while and make sure that you are happy to be a follower of Jesus. But assuming that you are finding joy in following Christ, my guess is, is that your greatest joy is in knowing that Christ is your Savior. We were lost and we were broken by sin, but God chose us in Christ and gave us eternal life. But after knowing Christ as our Savior, this great joy, is there anything that makes us happier than knowing Christ is our example? In the past few months, I've been listening to a lot of old sermons. And by old sermons, I don't mean vintage Billy Graham or vintage Sinclair Ferguson. I mean really old sermons in the 100 to 400-year-old range. Uh, one that struck me particularly was by B.B. Uh, Warfield, who was a Princeton theology professor. Uh, he was one of the church's greatest advocates for the beauty and the reliability and the authority of Scripture. Uh, the sermon I heard on Philippians 2, um, he, he spoke really powerfully about Christ as our example. When we see Christ's goodness and when we see his power, we want to be near him and we want to be like him. Many of my thoughts today are inspired by this sermon by B.B. Warfield. Some of them are just straight stolen. Um, <laughs> but I hope these thoughts are an encouragement and a challenge to you in the same way that they were an encouragement and a challenge to me. I want to ask a question is, has you've looked at the life of Jesus, have you ever looked at what Jesus did and what he said and thought, you know, he could have done that a little better? Is there anything missing in how Jesus acted as a man, as a teenager or as a boy or even as an infant? Even as a boy, the scripture says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. I know some of us as teenagers thought we were better than the people around us, but Jesus actually was better than the people around him, better than his neighbors and better than his parents. But he acted humbly and kindly, even as a teenager. He didn't think he was too good to work at learning a trade from his father, he wasn't too proud or too smart to attend the same synagogue year after year, month after month, learning God's word. As a man, Jesus didn't have any sins to confess, but he humbly got baptized anyway. 
He could do miracles, but when he was hungry, he didn't use his power to make food for himself or to impress other people. He trusted God to provide for his needs. Our kings and our presidents spend their time on private jets and on golf courses, eating fancy foods with celebrities and with artists. But Jesus was the king of kings, and he thought of others as more important than himself. He spent his time with thousands of poor and smelly and obnoxious and rebellious and even boring people. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He cast out demons. Everywhere he went, he gave himself to others so that they could be saved. And when the crowds turned against him and the religious leaders ordered that he would be executed, Jesus went to the cross without complaining. He suffered and died so that through his death, the world could live. One time when the Pharisees asked Jesus, and when, when the Pharisees attacked Jesus, excuse me, he asked them, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And I actually wonder if Jesus could have asked a more powerful question than that. Jesus could have said, when you look at my life, can you find anything wrong? Are there ways that Jesus hasn't been a good example for us to follow? When we have difficult times, when we're afraid, have we ever looked at how Jesus lived and how he died and thought, you know, Jesus, that just wasn't good enough? When we go through life's most difficult situations, failure and betrayal, danger, sickness, mourning, as Christians, we have a natural longing. We have a longing to be with Jesus. We want the peace that comes from being with him, knowing his power and knowing his care for us. But in addition to wanting to be with Jesus, I believe we should also be longing to be like Jesus. We should try to follow the example that Jesus set for us by how he lived. This is why Paul told the Corinthian church, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that wasn't Paul's idea. He didn't come up with that idea. You remember how Jesus told the crowds himself, learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. Today's passage asks us to learn from the example of Christ's incarnation. Christ becoming a man and living with us. It doesn't mean that when we do the same things that Jesus did, we are somehow lowering ourselves in the same way Jesus did. A few years ago, there were plenty of trendy ministries, mission agencies that moved into poor neighborhoods and called what they were doing incarnational. But I've come to think this is a little silly. We might be embarrassed to eat with a poor person or frustrated by living in a rundown house or impatient when caring for a sick person, but these feelings are mostly our hurt pride and our thwarted ambition. We are not lowering ourselves when we serve other people. As one of my seminary professors used to say, when it comes to church members and human beings as a whole, there ain't nobody here but us chickens. In this passage, Paul isn't asking us to think highly of ourselves or of our own sacrifices. Paul is asking us to think highly of Christ. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 or on your devices. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. And let's read it together. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from prison in Rome towards the end of his life. Uh, Philippi was a wealthy city in northern Greece and Macedonia is what they called it then. Uh, Although we call Philippians a book, it was really a letter. And it's a kind of letter that I know a lot about because it's a missionary thank you letter. Paul is writing to the Philippian church to thank them for giving him a financial gift. Uh, My wife Audrey and I are missionaries serving in Japan. And it's easy for us to understand how Paul feels when he writes this letter. For example, we really understand why you would want to take the time to write a thank you letter after receiving a financial gift. I have no idea how Paul found the time to write a thank you letter as long as the book of Philippians, but I understand the sentiment. Um, Maybe times were different then. Uh, More seriously, Audrey and I understand the deep affection that Paul was feeling for his friends and supporters in Philippi. It's humbling for us to receive a financial gift of any amount, and we often pray that God would bless and provide for the people who have given so humbly and sacrificially. Paul, in this letter, has no desire to nag or to talk down to the people in Philippi. What he wants for them is the same thing that Audrey and I want for our supporters, is he wants them to have the best things that God can provide in the same way that they have given good gifts to Paul. Uh, This particular passage in the New Testament is probably one you're familiar with. Um, Throughout the course of church history, this passage has been the focus of really hot theological discussion. Scholars have spent centuries discussing the meanings and nuances of single words, and many of these arguments haven't been resolved. They're still going on to this day. But when we think about these sort of hotly contested passages, um, passages that people like to argue about, I think we have two temptations, and both of these temptations are dangerous. The first temptation is to focus entirely on theological argument. We may research the right book to buy. We may think about how to win the argument that we're in, We may even try to learn some Greek. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is to surrender. We say, I don't have the time to understand the scripture in a meaningful way. I don't want to get in a fight. And so we throw up our hands and we move on to something else. I am sure that Paul didn't write the words in Philippians chapter 2 to begin a philosophical debate. And he certainly did not write these words to intimidate the Philippian church or make them feel ignorant or unintelligent. Paul is writing these words to encourage us to prayer and to praise. Uh, In fact, if you look at the structure of this passage, Paul is writing this like a hymn. Um, Good hymns don't, they aren't written to win debates, and they certainly aren't written to intimidate ordinary believers. Hymns, both in Paul's day and ours, model for us what a mature Christian life is like. It's also worth noting that hymns aren't often intended as to teach us new things. We don't learn new things about our faith necessarily from singing hymns and praise songs. More often when we sing hymns and when we sing praise songs, we are reminded of the things that we already know about God and about the Christian life. In the same way in this passage, Paul is not really trying to tell the church in Philippi new things about Jesus, but he's trying to remind ordinary believers of what they already know so that they will have the strength and encouragement they need to follow Jesus. 
So I want to focus on these three reminders from this passage. Um, The three reminders that Paul is giving the Philippian church here. The first one is, one, who is Christ? The second one is, what has Christ done? And the third one is, what attitude has Christ done it in? First reminder, who is Christ? Second reminder, what has he done? And then the third reminder, what attitude did he do it with? Paul answers the first question, who is Christ, in verse 6. Christ is in the form of God. Audrey and I have spent much of the last 10 years trying to get better at the impossibly difficult and frustrating Japanese language. Uh, Japanese is a big language. The average Japanese person has a vocabulary of something like 44,000 words. To to read a newspaper, you need to understand in the range of 2,400 Chinese characters. And it's also very different from English. There's very little similarity between the way that you would put together an English sentence and a Japanese sentence. But for most Japanese learners, the journey to sp- for most learners of Japanese, the journey to speaking Japanese begins with one special sentence. This is a pen. Kore wa pen It's a simple and memorable sentence, and Paul could have gone in this direction in verse 6. This is a pen. Jesus is God. But by saying Jesus is in the form of God, Paul is inviting us to think in better, bigger terms than just A is B. He's not saying Jesus was in the form of God, like this is the form of the pen, like it's the shape of a pen. Jesus is saying by in the form of God that he's inviting us to imagine all the things that make God God. And the things that if God didn't have them, he wouldn't be God anymore. We think all the time Jesus is God and we don't think much about it and we think fairly vaguely about it sometimes. But if we truly take the time to imagine one by one all the things that make God God, what Jesus truly is becomes much more real in our lives. He existed in the beginning. He created all things. He dwells in inapproachable light. He deserves the praise of all people. He has perfect wisdom. And the list goes on. So that's the answer to the first question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, and he has all the things that God has. The second question Paul answers is, his second reminder to us is in verse 7, what did Christ do? Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You'll notice that in this verse, Paul uses the same phrase as before. He doesn't say that Jesus was a servant, but that he took on the form of a servant. Christ didn't seem to be a servant. Christ's life on earth wasn't a demonstration, and it wasn't humiliation done for show or for attention. Uh, Christ also didn't just do the job of a servant. Christ took on a truly humble and servant nature. In the same way that Christ was all the things that make God God, he took on all the things that make a servant a servant. Things like humility and poverty, a lack of freedom, a lack of human rights, and the death of his own hopes and ambitions. We all know what it's like to feel unappreciated or to do work that someone else really should be doing or to be giving up our hopes and our dreams to help someone who's in need. These things are often very painful, and these emotions are difficult to overcome. However, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we will 
admit that the sacrifices we have made are a pale shadow of what Christ has done. The beautiful, powerful, worshipped, infinitely wise Son of God became a servant, a house helper, knowing that it would lead not only to hard work and embarrassment, but a gruesome and humiliating death on a cross as a criminal. So Paul's first reminder asks, who is Christ? He is God. The second reminder asks, what did Christ do? He became a servant. The third reminder, the third question that we need to answer is this, with what attitude did Christ do these things? So let's look together at verse 6. Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his by taking the form of a servant. Christ emptied himself. If we would like to understand Christ's attitude, these are the words that we need to understand. It would be nice if these words were super obvious in English just from reading the verse, but it's actually kind of tricky to understand what Paul means. Frankly, this isn't language that we would ever use ourselves, ever. Uh, when I call my wife to check on how my kids are doing, I don't think I've ever heard her say, uh, it's going great, Gus has really emptied himself while he's cleaning his room. Um, I <laughs> I don't know if he's ever cleaned his room. <laughs> Um, I think we can understand what Paul's better by... One of the things I've been convicted of recently is that each of us have the ability to understand the Word. We have the ability to understand the Scripture enough to apply it to our daily lives. We are overwhelmed by Bible studies and by podcasts, by sermon series and by video series and all of these things, but I would like to encourage you that you have the ability to read the Word and understand what it says. And one of the tools that you have for that is by looking at the thing you're trying to understand and looking before it and after it to try to figure out what it means. And so in this case, I think we can understand what emptied himself means just by looking a little bit before emptied himself. And so we look up to verse 3 and look at what Paul says in verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. This is, I think, what it means when it says that Jesus emptied himself. It means that Jesus didn't think much of himself. He didn't make himself of a high reputation or of um, a high account. Jesus lived a life of service, and then he died for us. He did this, it wasn't because God the Father forced him to, and it wasn't because he wanted something for himself, and it wasn't because he was afraid of losing something but he did it out of simple and unselfish love. For me, this is the most shocking part of this passage. I can accept the idea that Jesus is God. I can understand that Jesus would want a way for people to be saved, but I have a hard time understanding how Christ could have done what he did with an attitude of putting our needs before his own. If I were in the place of Christ, I would not have had the same attitude. And when I realize this, I'm pretty deeply ashamed. How many times on a daily basis do I put my needs in front of another person's? How much of my life is based on the idea that my hopes and my dreams, however good they are, are more important than helping other people reach their hopes and their dreams? 
when I read this passage, I am very glad that Christ is not like me, but that he is like God. So in this passage, we see two extremes. One is over here in the form of God, having all the things that God has. And the other is way over here. It's the form of a servant, having all the things that make a servant a servant. Christ was not only God, but had all the blessings and all the privileges that come with being God. He became a servant even though he knew it would mean a death on a cross. Christ did not do this out of sense of duty or out of ambition, but out of unselfish love. I think it's one thing to understand these in our heads, but it's another thing to let them change how we behave. Uh, When I study the Bible with my Japanese friends and with my Japanese contexts, the most common response after the end of reading through the passage together is one word, and that word is muzukashi. And muzukashi means difficult. Um, I used to think that that meant my Japanese friends didn't understand what the passage meant. So I would spend a lot of time going through the meanings of the individual words, asking more questions, going through cultural background, going to other parts of the Bible to help them understand. But more and more, I'm realizing my Japanese friends understand what the Bible means pretty well. They just don't want to accept what it means and do what it says. That's what's difficult about the Bible, isn't it? The problem isn't always our understanding, but the problem is usually having the will to be able to do it. I'd like to propose four ways that we can let this passage change the way that we think and act this week. Uh, One is about how we think. God is capable of self-sacrifice. This is really amazing and something that we ought to remind ourselves of more often. It's easy for us to wonder, does God really love me? Um, uh, Can I really trust him? It is easy to accept that God is powerful and perfect, that he made all things and that he is very different from us, but it is very hard to accept, I think really accept, that this mighty God might reach out to us individually and care for us. Once I had the opportunity to stay at the home of some old college friends, they were international students from outside of the U.S. As a matter of fact, they were from a tiny island in the Caribbean called Cayman Brack. Um, One morning, we grabbed snorkeling gear and swam out past the reef of a local beach. Uh, The thing that I will never forget about that morning is just past the reef, It was the continental shelf. We swam out in shallow water, four feet deep, and then all of a sudden it was like the bottom dropped out of the world into an infinite and incomprehensible blackness. It was thrilling. Uh, Many of you have seen a tornado. Uh, You've seen a flood, and it's easy to be overwhelmed. We can feel small or helpless. We can get a buzz of adrenaline, but we can't trust the continental shelf. We can't trust the flood, and we can't trust a tornado. We can feel of awe of God in the same way when we sing praise songs and read the Bible. But that's not enough, and it's not enough especially when we're hurt and when we're suffering and when we don't know what to do with our lives. Uh, We need to know that God loves us and that we can trust him to care for us. In In a normal Christian life, there are times when it's easy to imagine that God doesn't care for us. Or especially that if we make the risk of obeying him, doing what he says, that he won't be able to care for us when we come out of the other side. Uh, We know from scriptures that God is love. However, when we are hurt or when we're worried, we may think, God, you say that you love me, but right now I just need you to prove it. Christ's death on the cross is proof of his care. 
Christ had no reason to humble himself, to suffer and die, but he did humble himself out of his love for us. And when we see a God who is willing to make that sacrifice for us, we understand that we can trust him to care for us as well. Second application. This is less about how we think, but how we act, what our lives are like. A life of unselfish self-sacrifice is what God desires for us. What Paul wanted for the Philippian church is very clear in verse 5. Have this mind, a mind like Christ's, among yourselves. If we want to follow Christ, we need to, not by showing off or in self-pity, but humbly and sincerely care less about our, um, our own ambitions and care more about what helps our family members, what helps our friends and our neighbors. Christ's example is a life of self-sacrifice and unselfishness, and we should do the same. For some of you, God has been at work in your life through his Holy Spirit. You have understand God's word in this area, and you've been working hard to put it into practice. A life of humility and serving others is already your life. I am very impressed, and I sincerely praise God for you and for his goodness to you. But for the rest of us, myself included, we have a long way to go, and we will probably get a little roughed up in the journey. The life Christ modeled is the opposite of what the world desires and expects. Outside of Christ, our schools and our workplaces, our government, Facebook, and even our friendships work in very different ways. We are proud of ourselves. We work hard to make our dreams come true. In business, we compete to win. We make sure our opinion is heard and we stand up for our rights. We fight fiercely so that other people will think well of us. And in worldly terms, we're rewarded for this behavior. We get the job, we get our way, and people treat us with respect. But it's clear that this is not really the life that Christ has for us. Christ has something more difficult, but also better for our lives. The third application is a difficult one, and I'm still thinking about what this means for my life. On this point, I think we can all join with my Japanese friends in saying, Muzukashi. I understand what you mean, but I'd rather not do that. Um, May God help us as we try to follow his example. The third application is this, is that it's difficult to set a limit on the amount of self-sacrifice the example of Christ calls us to. We would all like to be unselfish, but we would be more comfortable if there were a limit. If there were some point where we've clearly sacrificed enough, and then we could start worrying about ourselves again. But when we look at the example of Christ, it's very hard to see where that limit is. Christ endured unimaginable embarrassment and humiliation. He has all the things that make God God, but he took all the humility that makes a servant a servant. When we think of a life of self-sacrifice and humility, we worry. What if we're hurt? Well, Christ died. What if people insult us? Christ was mocked. What if people treat us bad? Were there any wrongs that Christ did not take quietly? Can you imagine any sacrifice in your life or in my life that is greater than a holy and perfect God dying on a cross like a criminal to save foolish and rebellious people? So the difficult news for us today is that there is not much limit to the self-sacrifice that we see in the example of Christ. The good news is, is this life of self-sacrifice that Christ wants for us is not a grim or meager or boring or awful life. The world around us has lots of things to offer, money 
and success, pleasure, free time, hobbies. We think about what it might be like to lose these things. These things are valuable and they're fun and they're enjoyable and we like them. But are they worth as much as the people around us? Even more than that, are they worth much compared to the eternal destiny of the people around us? I cannot imagine at the end of my life looking back at all I have done and thinking, you know, I wish I had spent less time serving others in Jesus' name. I know that you've heard as Christians we should die to self, but we are not Buddhists. We are not trying to obliterate ourselves, lose our consciousness into the void of the universe, or suppress, manipulate, or deny our feelings. What Christ has called us to do is maybe not what you've heard, die to self, but more what Christ has called us to do is to die to our selfishness. Christ does not want to destroy our joy, but he wants us to find a different and better joy. When people work, we can be there to help. When people stumble, we can pick them up. When people are sick, we can help them to heal. A life lived for selfish desires is just one life. However, when we rejoice with the people around us, when we share the sorrow of the people around us who are hurting, and we feel pride when other people succeed, we may find that we are not living one selfish lives, but dozens or even hundreds of better and more beautiful lives. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you for the gift of eternal life that we have in him. Father, we know that following you isn't easy, but we pray that you would give us the strength and the joy that we need to do it. I pray that this week that you would give us opportunities to die a little bit to our selfishness and that you would give us the bravery to serve the others around us. You would be encouraged by that success and that we would learn to trust you more. Thank you for your word. Help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.